just to introduce you a little bit to who I am, um, so you're not guessing the accent, I am from South Africa originally, and uh, I came over ooh, around about 17 years ago now, so it was 1995, just after South Africa won the World Cup, um, I came over to Gloat, um, I ended up staying and uh, became assimilated, and of course now, who's gloating now? Um, I met my beautiful English Rose, Kath, uh, eight years ago. We got married, and um, we've been coming to the vineyard now for about two and a half years. And uh, this is home. It's great to be here, and uh, it's great to be standing before you today. I just wonder if we could just start this morning by just a little prayer. I'd like to commit this time to God. Father, I just pray that the words that I speak this morning are not my words, but are your words that they may be wise words, that they might bring encouragement and hope, and by your spirit, you would breathe your life into them. In the name of Jesus, amen. I feel really privileged to be ending this, this series on heroes by, by actually reintroducing you probably to a man who represents to me a true example of an unsung hero. He's a hero of the highest order, in my opinion. What is a hero? What does hero mean to you? Uh, to me, actually, I've got three heroes in my life. Um, I'm a big Formula One fan. I love Formula One. I'm a McLaren fan. I've got to say, I'm not too, too sad to see uh, the back of Lewis Hamilton at the moment, but, um, but I do, I'm a big fan of Jensen Button. Uh, Jensen Button represents to me somebody who's a genuinely good guy. He's always positive. He's always happy. He's got a real can-do attitude. He's consistent. He's reliable. He's the kind of guy that you really root for, and he's the kind of guy that you love it when he wins. And when he wins, he's just, he, he just represents to me a really, really worthy hero. The other hero in my life, I have to say, is my dad. Uh, my dad was born during the war. His mother uh, was sleeping on park benches at the time. Their dad was in Italy um, fighting in the war, and he actually got killed in Italy. But um, she was having a really hard time. So the, 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 the two boys were taken away from her, and they were put into children's homes. And uh, he spent all of his life in and out of children's homes. Um, he, they were sent from what was then, from here over to what was then Rhodesia, it's now called Zimbabwe. At that time, it was a British colony. And um, that's where he grew up. And that's the, the new land that he grew to know. It was a tough time. Of course, he grew up in children's homes and uh, boarding schools. And my dad's always been a survivor. He's always pushed on through, regardless of whatever circumstances have presented him. He's just a man who's full of hope. He's still full of hope. He's just a, gen a genuinely lovely guy and um, a gentleman, and in spite of the life that he's had, he's just a really good guy, and a man I just, I'm really proud to call my dad. The third man is the man I'm going to talk about today. He's my biblical hero. There's not really a lot that the Bible tells us about this man. Um, we know that he was a descendant of David, King David. Uh, he was a carpenter. Somebody who made furniture, at the very least. Uh, he features in nativity plays the world over every Christmas. 
he's, the, he's the character that all boys, well, at least I, fought every year to play. And um, I actually got the privilege to play him twice in my life, so I was quite proud of that. Uh, he was the husband of Mary, and he became the adoptive father of Jesus. Of course, my biblical hero is Joseph. It's always struck me that Joseph is a really genuine, all-round nice guy, kind of a Jensen Button, really, of the Bible, I would have thought. He was probably a bit quiet, the kind of guy who gets on with the job without complaining, and uh, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's hardworking, he's faithful. Uh, if I'm really honest with you, I'd say I had him down as probably a little bit gutless, the kind of guy who kicks, gets kicked a little, around a little bit by life, uh, but just doesn't fight back and gets on and doesn't complain. Over time, though, I've gained a little bit more of a, or a lot more of a deeper respect for the man that is Joseph. He's a man who's sure of his identity. He's a man who has a backbone like few others. He's prepared to risk his own reputation, going against the expectations of his community and his culture. A man with an intimate relationship to, with God. He loves so deeply that he risks everything as he stands up to defend what he knows to be true and right. I believe that Joseph was a man after God's own heart. He was loyal. He was quietly strong. He was fiercely protective. He was a defender of justice. And he's the only man that God would have entrusted to become the adoptive father and the role model of his very own son, Jesus. Looking at the genealogy of Jesus, we can see that in Matthew, um, we see that all of history concentrates at the point where the Messiah, which is Jesus, um, is introduced to the world. And Joseph is crucially positioned at that point in history to take on the role of Jesus' legal guardian. Much emphasis has been really quite rightly placed on Mary, she who, is, who was highly favored. Yet how much consideration have we really given to the fact that perhaps Joseph was equally highly favored? Could it be that God had in mind all along with that Joseph was to be the legal guardian of Jesus? as he entered the world as a baby, became a toddler, and grew up into adolescence and early, early adulthood. We, we need to keep in mind that Jesus, although being all God, was also all human. So that means that he was vulnerable as a baby. He needed to be physically protected. He needed to be provided for. He needed strong attachment figures in his life, and he needed a strong male role model to be, help him to become the man who he ultimately became. I'm picturing this family man, Joseph, who, who, who made furniture for a living, spending hours and hours with this boy, teaching him how to plane a piece of wood until it was perfectly smooth and flat. Teaching him how to use a chisel so that he didn't actually gouge out a chunk of his, his finger or his thumb. At the end of it, 
sanding down the furniture to get a glassy smooth finish to the furniture and then oiling it and treating it so that it brought out the luster and the color and protected it from the elements. My mum had, had a friend when she was growing up. Uh, they, they, they were closer than sisters they were. Uh, the two of them were inseparable. Um, and consequently, when my mum wasn't around, Colleen became the mum that, that sort of took her place. She's the one that I reported to. And in fact, that fact remains till today. Uh, although I'm almost 40 years old, if I don't phone at least once a month to check in with Colleen, I just don't hear the end of it. So I know better than that, and I, I've got, I'll make sure to ring her as regularly as I, as I can. Um, she, she's the ultimate matriarch. She's just a force not even to try and, and reckon with. Uh, Bob, her husband, uh, he's a quiet man. He's a military man. And uh, equally, he's a man not to be messed with, but in a very quiet way. He, um, he's been her lover, her, her driver, her fixer-upper, her best friend her partner, her companion for over 50 years now. And um, I lived for them for some t with them for some time. And, and you know, that experience really gave me a, a flavor of what it would be like to be an adopted son. What Bob doesn't know about engines just isn't worth knowing about. Anything with an engine, he knows everything about. And he taught me everything that I needed to know of, about how to treat and look after my car. He taught me how to service my car. He taught me how to, how to uh, do the timing on my car. He even taught me how to wash and polish my car in such a way as to protect it from the corrosive Durban sea air, which anyone from, from Durban would know, if you don't do that, your car's a rust bucket and just in no time. Um, the, the older I get, the more that experience really matures in me. I've got an ever-growing appreciation for the time that Joseph would have spent with Jesus, and just what an impact that that would have had on the man that Jesus became. In that time, adoption actually carried a, a whole lot more significance and weight than even having your own baby. People, if they wanted to, could give up the right of their own children. They could give up custody um, of, of their children but if you, if you entered into an adoption agreement that was permanent, that was signed and sealed, there was nothing but nothing that would get you out of that agreement. And that was a covenant that was set for good. So adoption carried huge significance in that time. God was making a statement about himself, choosing this man to adopt his son. Just as Joseph made the decision to accept and adopt Jesus, bringing him up as his own, we're adopted into the family of God, enjoying all the benefits and all the inheritance that that brings with it. Joseph loved Jesus as his own. He embraced him as his own. Let's just take a look at Matthew 18, sorry, Matthew 1, verses 18 to 23. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. I remember the day that I actually um, asked Kath for her hand in marriage. Uh, there was a bit of a build-up to that. At the time, I was living up in Luton. Uh, Kath was living around in Plaster in East London, and her parents lived in Surrey, still live in Surrey. And uh, I had in mind that, of course, I wanted to do things properly, and I needed to ask her dad for his daughter's hand in marriage first before I actually proposed to her. So, of course, there was this big journey, which went down the M1, around the M25 to Surrey, to ask her dad for his hand, for, for not his hand in marriage, for his daughter's hand in marriage. That would be the picture. And, uh, and then to get round to, to Plaster, where we were having dinner that evening. And uh, picture what might have happened on a Friday evening, which I hadn't quite fully considered or appreciated the significance of, trying to do this whole journey on a Friday evening on the M25. I'll leave it there for the time being. That's a whole other story. Uh, suffice to say, I eventually did get to Kath's house quite late, and we had a lovely evening, and uh, everyone was really, really happy to see me, thank goodness. And um, the next day, Kath and I were walking along the bank of the, of the Thames, uh, along the embankment, and um, kind of just in front of the Tate, the Tate Modern. And it was a beautiful sunny day, and... Uh, the boats were going up and down the river, and we came across this uh, bench that was sort of recessed into the wall. It was the perfect spot to sit down and just spend some time with each other. And I just realized that it was that moment that was perfect. And so in that moment, I got up and I got down on my knee, and I asked her for her hand in marriage. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I remembered what her response was. All I remember was this couple walking behind me, and I could hear this girl just going, oh, look, look, he's proposed to her, he's proposed to her. And this guy was just dragging her along. He just didn't want to know anything about it. <laughs> and so I was just kind of caught up in this moment, and I kind of looked back up at her, and I could see her reaction, and I, I sort of deduced that actually I'd had quite a positive response in return. <laughs> so, um, so that kind of went well. And uh, that was us, we were engaged. And, uh, yeah, that, that just about really sums up the extent of the engagement process in our culture. Back in Joseph's time, though, things were a little bit different. There was a kind of formal process that they had to go through. It was a two-stage process, and it involved agreements that had to be signed, prenuptial agreements, um, witness contracts, the whole lot sort of had to be, be gone through. The actual marriage ceremony itself was just really a formality. So let's just go on. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, they were in, a, in engaged in a, in a marriage agreement, the only way that out of that was if the, the bride-to-be actually was uh, unfaithful to her betrothed. Hence that, that, those words and that, that he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But listen to this. Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. A just man. What does it mean to call Joseph a just man? 
In my language, justice has always meant the equal application of the law and, of course, punishment, regardless of circumstance, without compromise for any reason whatsoever. The law of Deuteronomy was actually really clear. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24 says, If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in the town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge evil from among you. Pretty strong words, aren't they? That's what, they, that's what they believed in the cult of the time. That's what they held to in that time. Joseph just discovered that his betrothed must have cheated on him. She was pregnant. He would have been in a real emotional turmoil. Can you just imagine? Can you imagine as you find that out, what do you actually do with that? He's had his pride, he's had his identity as a man challenged and his standing in the community. If Mary had committed adultery, Joseph had every right under the Jewish law to have her stoned to death. In fact, that would have been the just thing to do. So here he is, caught in this place of having his morality called into question. Because I say morality because if he had opted for anything less than, than that, having her, uh, having a stone to death, it would have implied that maybe he had actually done something dishonorable. He had not act, acted honorably, and he actually had sexual relationships, sexual relations with Mary before the time was actually right. So he's caught in this place where his morality has been called into question, his honor has been called into question. His integrity has been challenged, together with the expectations of his community to uphold Jewish custom and act justly by having this woman put to death. Yet Joseph decided to ignore the law of Moses as his community uh, understood it. And he, he had mind to divorce her quietly. Is this an act of a, of a gutless man? Or was it in fact a very bold and risky act? even a costly act that belongs to the reckless and the brave. Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book entitled Fear and Trembling. And in it, he argues that authentic faith requires an absolute relationship to the absolute. Let me say that again. Authentic faith requires an absolute relationship to the absolute. What does that mean? What does the word absolute mean to you and me? How is God the absolute? Absolute goodness, absolute kindness, absolute grace, absolute power, absolute authority. Actually, to put a word behind the word absolute actually is to limit God, to limit him to one of those things or to a set of those things. God is all those things. 
God is everything. He's everything without measure. He is the absolute. Full stop. Now imagine having an absolute relationship to the absolute. It's the kind of relationship that sees us standing naked before God, before this absolute God, without the law standing in between. It's the kind of relationship that God had in mind right from the Garden of Eden. The nakedness of Adam and Eve was far more than the physical nakedness that you and I have always had in mind. Their nakedness was an absolute relationship to the one who is absolute. Untarnished by the need for the law that was made to restore that broken relationship. It was a relationship that saw them working in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with the whole of creation. You see, much of sin comes from a twisted or misplaced legalism. The enemy, he manipulates the truth in a way that it just still seems like the truth. But the litmus test is the question, how does this affect my absolute relationship to the absolute? If the answer to this question is in any way unclear, then there's a chance that perhaps we need to examine our relationship with God, with the people in our lives, and with the environment that we take for granted. One of the biblical examples that Kierkegaard used in describing this absolute relationship was Mary. Her surrendered relationship to God was displayed in her unquestioning, self-denying acceptance of this thing that she had no understanding of, but was willing to endure whatever the personal cost. It was that relationship that caused her to be called she who is highly favored. Today, I present to you a man, the only man worthy of Mary. The only man recognized by God who would exemplify a nobler and higher form of justice, moving beyond ethical expectations of the law in order to show compassion and thereby risk his own reputation. You see, Joseph knew his identity. He knew what it meant to, having a, to have a living and contextualized understanding of the word of God that went beyond the law, beyond cultural expectation, back to the roots, roots embedded in an absolute relationship to the absolute. For Joseph, Justice wasn't retributive, that is to say that you've done me wrong, therefore I'm going to make sure you pay for it. It wasn't equal application of the law, that's to say, well, I pay my taxes, so of course, therefore, so should you. His definition of justice, his definition of justice was just about compassion. It was about compassion for the weak. Compassion for the hurting, for the tired, for the hungry, for the marginalized, for those on the edge of society. 
He looked at this emotionally bruised, exhausted, confused woman, and he felt compassion for her, acting out of, out of a prophetic definition of justice. And had he not acted with that kind of restorative justice, Jesus would never have been born. Joseph is not a mute, passive figure. His sensitivity, his strength, his decisiveness in a time of crisis acted to save the lives of a mother and her unborn child. Can you imagine what would have been going through his mind at the time? Don't forget, in verses 18 and 19, Joseph hadn't had the privilege that Mary had had yet of having had a visit from, from an angel before he found out about what was going on. Let's just have a little look at this. stolen a melon from the market and hidden it under your dress. No, I, I am pregnant. And everything's exactly as it seems. Please listen to me. Oh, God, you'll never see me again. But don't you even want to hear what I've got to say? I'm not asking you to change how you feel, not even to understand, but just to let me explain as best I can. You at least owe me that. Joseph! I'm all right. Go. Who is he? 
Who? The father. There isn't one. Not in the way you mean. What? I haven't betrayed you. For God's sake, Mary, you're pregnant. I know it isn't mine. This isn't my doing. You were raped. No. Well, then what? A messenger came to me. What? From God. Oh, right. The messenger, he, he told me I would bear a son, that the Holy Spirit would enter me and give me a child. This is what you wanted me to listen to. It's the truth. I'm still a virgin. You're saying that a messenger came from God and told you that she'd bear a son. Yes. While you're in Judah. No, before I left. Before you left? What? And you didn't think to mention I it? I tried, but I, I couldn't find the words. I was frightened and confused. And he also talked about my cousin. That's why I had to see her, to be sure. You're carrying God's son. Yes. Or is the truth that you went to Judah, had a few too many glasses of wine, and ended up in bed with someone? No, no. That you're not the pious little Mary that everybody thinks you are, that despite being betrothed, You've been whoring yourself in Judah. Joseph, please. Please what? Believe you're a virgin and are carrying God's child. Oh, forgive your whoring. What I told you is the truth. So it's not enough that you betray me. You want me to look like a fool as well. I haven't betrayed you. I loved you. Verse 20 goes on to read, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of, Me son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. But as he considered these things, considered, who, having discovered something of such monumental significance, calmly sits and considers? <laughs> now I know myself. Kath will happily confirm that every time somebody pulls right out in front of me, my reaction is immediate. I flash my lights at them, and I let them know what they've just done. In a way, just believing that somehow they're going to become convicted of what they've just done and then suddenly realize and be really apologetic about it. I don't ponder, I don't consider what they might have been thinking at the time or even how I might respond in that situation. My response is immediate. It's almost instinctual. I hate that about myself. I wish I was the kind of person that was able to escape from my body and elevate to this higher place and calmly just consider what my reactions are gonna be and how I'm gonna work around this minor inconvenience. But I don't. I just don't. I don't know about you, but I can't identify with the man of this language. And therefore, I can't feel any consolation or hope for my own humanity and my fallibility. However, can identify with that Joseph. The Greek word that's used 
for the word considered has two meanings. The first word actually is right. It, it is considered or pondered. The second meaning, however, or the second translation means to become angry. That is, to become upset or agitated. Isn't it a far more real emotion, far more authentic emotion to be feeling under the circumstances? What if Joseph wasn't the calm, collected, saintly character that the English translation seems to suggest that he is? What if, in fact, he was human? His emotional responses were human, and yet he was able to triumph over them. Would that enable you to better identify and engage with the character and, of course, the story, and offer you a little bit more hope about your own life and your own circumstances? I know it would me. It's vital to understand the context, what's really happening beneath the surface at that time for that person. Later on in Matthew, the same word is used when Jesus is challenging the, the, the scribes. He, he picks up their agitation and their fuming as he challenges them. And this time, the word refers to the anger within the person. This better helps us to understand what's going on within Joseph as he considered. A better way to translate might be to say, while he fumed. So... While he fumed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying. We can now see Joseph as a real human being who has an absolute relationship to the absolute. With a spirituality and authentic faith and attitude to justice that we can realistically aspire to, that results in the ability to reprocess anger into grace. He had the boldness, the daring, the strength of character to stand up to his community, to shun convention, and to take Mary as his wife. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. And as I do, can I just ask you to think about this? This half of this book would not have been written. You wouldn't be sitting here right now. And all of history... In fact, all of eternity would look completely different. Joseph was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't a saint. He was human like you and I, impacted by emotion. He had an authentic faith based on an absolute, surrendered relationship to the absolute. A relationship that was independent of the prevailing cultural expectations and untarnished by the need for the law. His definition of justice was prophetic, it was restorative, and it was contextualized by that relationship. Yes, he was brave, and yes, I believe he was a true hero. But Joseph is my hero because he gives me hope. Hope that an entirely surrendered, supernatural, healing, life-giving, hope-giving relationship with the Lord of all eternity is not beyond our grasp. And that we have it within ourselves to be heroes in spite of ourselves and our circumstances. God has made that possible through Jesus.
whatever our circumstances, wherever we may be, we have a way and a route to him. We have hope in an absolute relationship to the absolute. And all of that is represented through this man, this hero, who is Joseph. Chris, in the band, thank you. Thank you.